Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. So much. For best performance by an actress, the nominees are Janet Sussman for Nicholas and Alexandra, Julie Christie for McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Jane Fonda for Clute, Glenda Jackson for Sunday Bloody Sunday, Vanessa Redgrave for Mary Queen of Scots. May I have the envelope, please? The winner is Jane Fonda. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we're going to be talking about the 1972 ceremony year win for Jane Fonda, a Best Actress in a Leading Role for the movie Clute. Um, I am joined today by a recurring guest and one of the fan favorites. Always love having her back. Her number one comedy album, I'm Your Number One Dad, went to number one on iTunes. And it's absolutely a hilarious comedy album that you should check out. It's Catherine Niker. Hi, Catherine. Hello, hello. I would love for you to find another way to say number one multiple times in the same <laughs> sentence. How oh, and I will. was that? <laughs> because it was just so good that it, it, it bared <laughs> repeating a thousand times. But it, it is a great album. Thank <laughs> you so much. It's so great to be back. Oh, yes. No, I get I get messages about you. People are like, oh, my God, my favorite's Catherine. You need to bring back Catherine. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know what? I love being a guest on this podcast, and I'm glad it shows. That's so Yay. cool. Yay. Okay, so uh, very quickly, 1972 ceremony year. So best picture went to The French Connection. Best director went to William Friedkin for The French Connection. Best supporting actor actress went to Cloris Leachman for The Last Picture Show. Sad she died. And best supporting actor went to Ben Johnson also for The Last Picture Show. Best actor went to Gene Hackman. So The French Connection really just swept this year yeah. um, in all major categories. And then Jane Fonda. Yeah, I you know what? I haven't actually seen The French Connection. Is that terrible? I haven't seen it either, but I do know that the director, William Friedkin, I'm pretty sure he was the same guy that did The Exorcist, and a lot of people said that he shouldn't have won Best Director for The French Connection because it was too soon because it was like his first movie, and they were like, mm, it should have been The Exorcist, but instead of giving it to him for The Exorcist, uh, they ended up like skipping over him and giving it to someone else. There's a very interesting podcast called Inside the Exorcist. It's like mm. this six-part series podcast. It's amazing, and I very much recommend checking that out if you're interested. Well, you know, it's so funny how the Oscars always do that because I was reading about uh, Julie Christie, who's a, a nominee this year, and mm. uh, she won a Best Actress Oscar the same uh, year the sound of music came out so julie andrews lost the yeah. best the best actress oscar for the sound of music because she won the year prior for mary poppins that's right and actually that's so interesting that you say that because be kind rewind just did a very very interesting video literally about that about julie christie versus julie andrews yeah that's so it's cool. really yeah, it's like a 40-minute video. It's so, so interesting. I love that channel. It's like actually a big part of the reason why I started this podcast. It was I was like, oh, oh my God, I'm so obsessed cool. with the Oscars. Yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. Um, so I don't think that you have seen any of the movies this year, right? Like I've seen Clute, but all of the other ones were like 
unknown to me. Uh, all these films for me were unknowns prior to uh, this assignment. Okay. So as a disclaimer, because I think that a lot of people, you know, I find people that like love 1970s films, like they love 1970s <laughs> films. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know that like, I'm not crazy about 1970s films, but I will say there were definitely some amazing, enjoyable films in this uh, category that we're going to discuss. But then there were some that were just fucking painful. Um <laughs> But but we'll we'll get into it. And honestly, there was also a couple of like surprises in here. So this was this was a very interesting year. So, you know, I always say that this is not in any particular order, but I'm just gonna say the first person that we're gonna talk about is uh Vanessa Redgrave in Mary Queen of Scots. And actually, I'm used to Vanessa Redgrave in a supporting category, like from Julia or Howard's end and so for me it's kind of like interesting seeing her in like a lead role which i'm uh at first i was like oh like oh, what's this gonna be like um but just very quickly so uh mary queen of scots during the 16th century the catholic mary queen of scots engages in over two decades of religious and political conflict with her cousin the protestant queen elizabeth i of england amidst uh, amidst political intrigue in her native land and uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, is played by Glenda Jackson, who was also a nominee, but for a different movie, uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday. We will get into that. Um, although, honestly, just off the top, I have to say that I, I kind of thought that Glenda Jackson gave a better performance in this. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we'll uh, talk I, about I'm it. I'm trying not to jump ahead there, but yeah. Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> for sure. Um, but... But Mary Queen of Scots, so Vanessa Redgrave is playing um, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, and they did a remake of this film recently uh, with Saoirse Ronan and, uh, oh my god, I'm totally blanking on her name, I, Tanya. Margot Robbie? Margot Robbie, thank you. She played Queen Elizabeth, and they, they did Robbie a remake. Margot Robbie played Queen Elizabeth? Yeah, and she did a pretty good job, although it was a little Alice in Wonderland, Elizabeth kind of okay. vibes, but they did a remake, and apparently it was so historically inaccurate. So Mary Queen of Scots was not, she didn't have a Scottish accent. That was the thing that I thought was weird at first, but apparently Vanessa Redgrave actually nailed it. She either would have been British or she would have had a French uh, accent. I wondered that too, because I feel like on the Scottish side of things, there's like a couple people who have an accent. And then a lot of people who just have a British accent, and I that kind of threw me a bit. And and that's why I was like, what? And then I actually Googled it, and then it said that, yeah, the new version where Saoirse Ronan has a very thick Scottish accent was um, incredibly historically inaccurate because she didn't apparently, allegedly, have a Scottish accent. So I guess this movie is maybe a little bit more historically inaccurate, but it's also a Hollywood film. So you have to kind of take mm -hmm. it everything with a grain of salt. Um, very quickly though, uh, Vanessa Redgrave playing Mary queen of Scots. At first I was like, oof, I don't know about this, but frankly, uh, this was actually one of the more enjoyable movies in this list. It didn't get like fantastic ratings from critics. Um, but I just, I love period pieces. I love anything to do with like any kind of royal dynasty. I love like family drama. Um, you'd think I'd be into the Kardashians, but I'm not. But like, 
just that kind of idea. And I love all the drama and stuff like that. And this movie really wasn't short of that. I love watching um, Vanessa Redgrave and Glenda Jackson um, go up against each other in a respectful, but also like in a survivalistic kind of way. They brought out the best from each other. But what's interesting is they didn't meet until kind of near the end of the movie. Um, but it seemed like they had this connection the whole time. Um, so what did you think about this movie and what did you think about Vanessa Redgrave? Yeah, it's one of the few movies on this list that are actually a female story. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which is going to be a, a recurring theme, I think, uh, this episode. I, I thought for um, a historical biopic of its time, it was fine. You know, mm -hmm. I just think there's been so many stories about the royals and different periods of time about the royals that it's just, for me, and I think this came up when we were talking about Helen Mirren, it's just so hard to compare, you know, because I just feel like I've seen so much royal content throughout the mm -hmm. years. But I will say for its time, I did enjoy it. I do feel like um, I feel like in the writing of the Mary Queen of Scots character, Vanessa Redgrave's character, it wasn't really there. I do feel like both of these women, um, Mary Queen of Scots and and Queen Elizabeth, were kind of written in a in a two dimensional way, and I felt like it was sort of up to these actresses to try and add more nuance to these characters. Okay. If that makes yeah. sense? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I just felt like, I mean, it's it's so much history you're trying to tell in such a little amount of time that maybe, you know, there's only so much you can do. But I, I just felt like we were really glossing over things at, at some points in the movie. And then when we got to sit in it, it just felt better. Yeah, because I know what you mean by the two-dimensional thing. Because it was either like, oh, like, I'm in love with you or like off with their head. Yeah. And that kind of became repetitive. Um, it was like watching a Game of Thrones episode or something. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm not really mad at that necessarily, but I think the thing that Vanessa Redgrave really did for me is I'm watching, because if you kind of like, if you like squinted, didn't it look like Gwyneth Paltrow in Shakespeare in Love? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like, I kind of saw that and I go, oh, like, this is what Gwyneth Paltrow in Shakespeare in Love should have been. Like, because <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave is clearly a very um, talented actress. She clearly has um, quite a bit of, of range. Um, I think it's very interesting, though, the way that at this time, women always had to be so likable. And right. I think what I liked about Glenda Jackson was like, she wasn't, she was very much like a boss. She was very much like, I have a job to do and I need to maintain my sovereignty. So I'm yeah. just like going to do anything I can to maintain that. Um, frankly, I kind of thought Elizabeth was a little bit more interesting than yeah, Mary Queen of Scots. In this movie, Glenda Jackson, I feel is the more compelling actress between the two, but I guess mm -hmm. Glenda would have been a supporting actress in yeah. this movie so it's not like it's not a category fraud situation or anything like that but yeah yeah glenda jackson as queen elizabeth is far more the compelling performance 
Well, I mean, if you compare the amount of screen time to like Julie Christie and Mr. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you could argue that according to 1970s standards that Glenda Jackson was a lead because Mm. it just seemed like you just needed a solid 20 minutes on screen and then you were like the lead actress of the movie because, you know, roles for women were so limited or good roles for women were so limited back then. And what I enjoyed very much about Vanessa Redgrave, though, in this movie is that as an audience member, you couldn't really tell if she was being very naive or very brave about her decisions. Mm, that's a great point. And I thought that that was the ambiguity of that, of kind of like, oh, like, is she actually like standing up for her beliefs? Because in the end, it was like her religious conviction because she chose to die a martyr. And you're like, okay, so maybe it was brave. But then there were some moments where it was kind of naive. I mean, I guess, historically speaking, Mary Queen of Scots was quite young. So I'm assuming she probably didn't have like a ton of life experience to. And also, didn't the French mother's like the the prince's mother like fucking hate her so it's like i just don't really know if she had like a lot of experience like ruling a kingdom (laughs) um so like maybe that played into it as well but like she carries the role of mary queen of scots very effortlessly and she had um a a lot of fantastic scenes specifically with glenda jackson those were always my favorite i also like loved all of the like love interest like between like her fucking bitch of a husband And then the, like, sexy, virile man who, like, comes in and divorces his wife and I think he eventually, like, dies at the border. Uh, Or no, I think he gets sent to Denmark and then they imprison him and kill him. But anyway, I I found the story very compelling. I really enjoyed Vanessa Redgrave. I think that she carried the picture very effortlessly and I love seeing her in a leading role compared to, like, a supporting role. But overall, for me, it was Glenda Jackson that was like kind of the like the bad bitch and the the one that I was kind of rooting for, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to agree with you. And I think it's like to me, I feel like this film is somewhat of a simplistic portrayal of yes. Mary Queen of Scots, her story and that whole moment in history. But that's no fault of the actresses in it i think they did the most with what they had and Mm. um yeah i think its simplicity is um you know due to the era and time that this story was was being told like you said about women being likable and you know not a ton of female-led stories at the time and so yeah it's hard it's i feel like it's hard for me to to gauge this because as i watched the movie i just felt like there was potential for so much more mm-hmm. you know but i will say the moment where mary queen of scots and queen elizabeth actually kind of come face to face towards the end of this film is deeply satisfying and i yes. do love the way that they chose to structure that so yeah all all in all uh fairly fairly good <laughs> no i completely agree with you i also wrote the same thing i said the oscar moment was when she refuses to beg for forgiveness and accepts her death as a martyr mm-hmm. and also when they meet for the first time but fun fact historically speaking that is complete fiction yes uh queen elizabeth and mary queen of scots never ever met in person never Whoa, and not even once no Whoa. that never happened yeah so and that's weird because you know. they were they're like related they're like cousins yeah, 100%. And she technically wow. is like the rightful heir to the throne. 
Because right. Elizabeth was like a bastard child from who? And Anne Boleyn was her mother, wasn't she? Um, I can't remember. I can't remember. I'm sorry. I don't follow that much enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah nobody, nobody quote us on any historical people are, accuracy. People are going to get mad at us for not doing That feels like something we should know. but <laughs> Yeah, it's it's probably. Um, and Vanessa Redgrave was actually originally cast as Elizabeth. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I'd be curious to see what that would be like. Yeah. But I good movie. I, I feel like I wouldn't want to flip those two. I feel like... I feel like Glenda brought a certain grit to that Elizabeth role. There was also a lot of like themes of bisexuality this year, which like I am yeah. not, I was delightfully surprised. Um, by. Elizabeth was the daughter of Anne Boleyn. I, I Googled it. Oh, Hey, I just passed the test. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> I got one, right? This is like what the 67th episode and I've gotten every historical fact wrong, but that's the one. So it's my redeemer award. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you have anything else that you would like to add to Vanessa Redgrave's performance specifically before we move on? Um, I'll just say that I that I do appreciate how you describe this balance between uh, naivete and and braveness. And uh, she probably just didn't have enough advisors, to be honest. Poor thing. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of made the story more realistic, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about Glenda Jackson in Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can shed some light on this. I'm going to just very quickly describe what this is about, and then maybe you can shed some light on this because I found the title confusing. Um, So this movie, very quickly, the emotional intricacies of a polyamorous relationship between young artist Bob and his two lovers, a lonely male doctor um, who's Peter Finch and is very gay, his name is Daniel, and a frustrated female office worker played by Glenda Jackson. Now, for the time, this movie came out in 1971. Mm-hmm. This was probably, a lot of actresses were offered this role um, that uh, Glenda Jackson, she played a character named Alex Greville, and a lot of actresses turned this down because they said that it was too risque. Mm-hmm. And I can completely understand that. Obviously, all of these films with all art is a product of its time. So when you watch a story like this, it's not exactly scandalous to today's standard, exactly. Because at the heart of it, you do have Glenda Jackson and Peter Finch's um, inner struggles of, I mean, Peter Finch has a, his struggles of being lonely, but also with like his Jewish faith. And then Glenda Jackson's issue of um, happiness and how to find happiness and and believing in self-worth and, um, you know, so that was kind of interesting. And then obviously uh, Murray had Bob Elkin, the bisexual was kind of just like a device. Um, and, <laughs> That's fine, but like, over like I don't know. This movie to me, out of all of them, was the most boring. And maybe you could explain this to to me. Why was the movie called Sunday Bloody Sunday? Did I did not catch that? So here's the thing. Um, no, no one dies in this movie. <laughs> right. That's why I was confused. Um. Not only, uh, I don't understand the title of this movie at all, and that won't even be the last time I say that this episode. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The title of this movie makes uh, no sense to me at all. I guess 
Glenda Jackson and Peter Finch were celebrated because this would have been considered a very brave performance. I mean, they actually had won the BAFTAs for Best Lead Actor and Best Lead Actress, and John Schlesinger won Best Director. Um, Also, Daniel Day-Lewis made his screen debut in this movie because he was paid two euro to, or is that pounds? Two pounds to vandalize expensive cars. He said he loved it. Um, uh, Peter Finch said that he didn't mind kissing Murray because he quote did it for England and yes that is what all gay men do we're, we're very patriotic actually Daniel Whoa. and I's sex towel Daniel and I's sex towel is a Canadian flag so is it really? it really is so <laughs> we're fucking for Canada under- we're very do you, under- do you understand this reference though that he was doing it for England? No, I don't, don't. I don't. I have no idea. Pushing the art of acting forward and representing England, I actually yeah, I have mean, no idea. Yeah, I don't. I mean, yeah. Like, does it have to do something politically at the time? The the swinging sixties, right? Maybe yeah, I don't. Some connection there, but I don't know. But I do know that a year before, Glenda Jackson had just won Best Actress in a Lead Role for Women in Love. So maybe her nomination was also tied up in the Mary Queen of Scots where they're like, clearly she has insane range. So let's recognize her for this more risque role than the safer Shakespearean Elizabethan role. Yeah. I mean, I think, okay. I have a, I have quite a few thoughts on this. film. I mean, like, you know, there's a part of me that appreciates the progressiveness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, right, because it's showing polyamory, bisexuality, and, and queerness in, uh, in a positive light that it probably didn't get at this time. Right. Um, so there's like an appreciation for that. But I think it's like the film to me is so self-aware that it's being risque that it's like mm. that's all we're gonna give you. You know what I mean? It's like we're like we're not going to add layers of anything more compelling than this dynamic because we know that's going to be enough for the audience and i feel like that was probably true so i can't blame it necessarily but with glenda jackson's character i I just didn't understand what was in it for her to even (laughs) be in this relationship like it's like a it's like a casual like friends with benefits kind of relationship where there's moments where they're maybe a bit closer than that uh, and everybody kind of knows what's going on so it's not like he's like cheating or anything like that but it, it's just like she was not happy in the relationship but then mm-hmm. didn't want him to go and i felt like there was probably more to each of them emotionally that could have been explored like i think peter finch's character the one who plays the doctor he's the one who we actually get to learn the most yeah and i actually think he's probably the most interesting out of the three of them 100 percent. and it it kind of doesn't pick and choose between the three of them whose story we're telling we're kind of telling all three of them but uh, i just felt like it it deserved to dig deeper into who these people are and why they value this relationship with this uh with this bisexual guy now i'm blanking on his name was it bob yes it was because he just doesn't like 
he's a free spirit which is great but he, i feel like he doesn't give either of them enough to hold on to so i'm just kind of asking myself what are they holding on to but also like why like what was his motivation for literally anything he literally, literally was anything, yeah. yeah like i just i didn't understand like it's like well why do you need or why do you feel the need to be in multiple relationships like what do you get out of it like what what is the what is that 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 hole that you need filled for lack of a yeah. better term but like i would find that more interesting and you're right i also think that peter finch is definitely the most interesting character and for me glenda jackson in the movie was like maybe a little one note is yeah. that like kind of bad to say like it was just she seemed very much like, well, I'm unhappy and I'm unhappy because I'm in a relationship that makes me unhappy. And then they're like, okay, well, what are you doing to become, because I think she's like divorced or something. So, and then she has like low self-esteem. So it was just kind of like, like the whole movie and that's fine, but you didn't really see like any kind of drastic change or drastic growth. Maybe you don't necessarily need that in, in, a, in a movie, but I needed something because I was quite bored. And yeah. I also didn't understand the babysitting role that she had with Bob where she was babysitting those like feral children. Oh my god, the first hour of this movie, or what it felt like the first hour of this movie was um was Glenda and this Bob guy played by Murray Head. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> what a name. Anyway, so <laughs> So, uh, Glenda playing Alex. Alex and Bob are playing these, like, way... They're babysitting these wayward children. These, like... Yeah. They're, like, smoking pot, and they're, like, maybe 10 years old uh, yeah. <laughs> at the beginning of the movie. Like, look at how progressive we are. Like, no, that's not progressive. That is, It's, like, it's insane. That is yeah. abuse. Get that joint out of that child's face. Like, what are we doing? And they're just, like, babysitting this massive house of children and then just, like, trying to have sex when the kids are asleep. I The whole first hour of this movie, I just don't even understand. And then and then they kind of frame it like Bob is sneaking off to be with uh, Daniel Hirsch, which is Peter Finch's character. And then uh, and then you reveal they kind of reveal that it's actually not a secret and that they're all in on it. And I felt like that was a huge letdown. Right. Because you're thinking I... this is an affair and then it's not an affair. And then it's just it had this like anticlimactic kind of quality to it. Yeah, I mean, totally. I actually really love the cinematography and the direction of the movie. I love the way that it was shot. I found that to be kind of the most interesting part of this film because it just seemed very modern, especially, mm -hmm. like, for the time. Like, it didn't seem like I was watching, like, a play. Um, right. But, like, in terms of, like, the story and stuff like that, I mean, I'm sure for the time this was probably groundbreaking. It's just that since then, according to a 2022 standard, polyamory, bisexuality, we have much more interesting, dynamic, accurate stories, more compelling and more entertaining than what they have done in this film. So again, I do have to kind of take this with a grain of salt where it's like, you know, I kind of was bored off my face, but at the same time, like for, I guess like baby steps and for the time, like this would have been like 
you know, very risque. So I guess they couldn't go too deep into it. And I'm just sad that they didn't. Um, But I suppose I understand because, again, 1971. Um, I was thrilled whenever that little girl, that feral child who was smoking pot, (laughs) took the dog and ran across the busy highway like an idiot and then the dog dies, and I love that all of the adults were screaming at the kid. They were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I'm like, thank you. That was so avoidable. What child goes running into – it's one thing if it's like an empty street, and then the car comes barreling around the corner and then hits the dog. You're like, yes, that is tragic. No, 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 no. This was like a busy freeway, and she's like, I'm going to go – Play Jacks. Oh, she was high off her face. That's why she. (laughs) (laughs) And you're just thinking, like, what did the 1970s think that pot did to you? Like, when I'm high, like, I'm just like lying down on the couch eating wine gums. Like, I'm not running. When you were like 10 years old, I actually the child could have even been younger, possibly. I'm not sure, but uh, (laughs) yeah. Either way, this movie was just a long commercial for birth control. That's all I'm saying. These well, children were insufferable. The dog is maybe the only significant death in this movie. Don't even know <laughs> if it died on a Sunday or not. And, <laughs> and there's absolutely no consequences whatsoever for this dog's death. The movie has nothing to do with this dog at all. It's just this like thing that happens. Oh, yeah. Didn't the like, owner of the dog? It doesn't like it doesn't. There's nothing <laughs> that happens to anyone involved. After the fact, it really had nothing to do with anything. Maybe we're trying to show that these two are not competent parents, but neither are their actual parents, or (laughs) is anyone else in the movie, nor are they even aspiring to be parents. So, yeah, it it, it was just like, look, these three are – can I swear on this podcast? Of course. (laughs) It's just the whole movie is these three are fucking. Yeah. (laughs) And holy shit. And everything else is just window dressing. It's so true. But especially the dog dying. I remember I was like, oh, this is going to be some drama. Glenda Jackson's got to go to the owner and tell you know, oh, and of course, what? Oh yeah, what I was I babysitting love. your five pot smoking kids and the dog. Yeah. <laughs> and I killed How your dog. How is that not the movie? <laughs> and then the owner of the dog was like, "Oof, that sucks." Anyway, do you want some pancakes? It was like, oh, okay, wow. We're just glossing over that. Oh, although what I loved about this movie was every five seconds, Glenda Jackson was like, "Oh, I'm terribly sorry." Every five seconds, she was terribly sorry. <laughs> I can't stop saying that now. I'm terribly sorry, terribly sorry. I'm just terribly Look, sorry. Like Every a, <laughs> like a true woman who lacks self esteem, just constantly yeah. <laughs> apologizing for your existence everywhere you go. Listen, I've done it. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> way too many times because I just constantly felt like I was in the way. Did you say it with a British accent? No, but man, I should have. You should have. <laughs> Because now I can't stop saying I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> but a lot, and, and you listen, I mean, a lot of the acting in this role for her was was very inward thinking, mm-hmm. but you could always tell what was going on with her character. Um, I guess the conflict of Alex is really just trying to make her situation work because I think that 
this was maybe implied, but she felt like she couldn't do any better because when her family is kind of grilling her and she just doesn't want to talk about it. And it's like, I think she maybe had low self-esteem. Maybe that was implied. Maybe that's just something that I'm projecting. I don't know, but I think that was also it, kind Im- of, yeah, implied and projecting, but probably accurate because um, like I was saying, it's like, we just don't understand why she would even stay in a relationship like this. Yeah, and then when she sleeps with her client, you're like, okay, so you're just kind of trying to grab onto any love that you can get. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I understand that. Um, and again, I'm sure that for the time, this performance was very brave, and she clearly is an incredible actor. I just, um, I found the title confusing. I found the movie boring. I didn't care about any of the characters except for Peter Finch. And I found him to be the most interesting character in a boring movie. And I frankly don't really have much else to say about this role or this film. Yeah. I will say that, um, you know, it's kind of similar to my critique of, of Mary queen of Scots. I feel like as actors, they did the most with what they were given. Yeah. Right. Like, so it's really not to disparage Glenda Jackson at all. Like I think, she you know like you said like her performance was very inward and i think she was trying to give this character the most and i think maybe we're in an era now that in our writing and in our directing we're able to give actors a bit more to work from but Mm -hmm. you know it's another um victim i was gonna say victim of its time but that's too intense of a word (laughs) (laughs) but it kind of it kind of is though kind of yeah you know where it was just it was too daring to be any deeper and i think she uh she really did her best here i think so too also i don't know why but maybe it was just the haircut i'm getting a lot of like ellen burston vibes (laughs) i don't know who ellen burston is from like The Exorcist, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Requiem for a Dream. Oh, okay. I don't remember her for her haircut. <laughs> she basically this was Look, just when I, I, I think guess of like Requiem the bomb. for a Dream. I am not thinking about this woman's haircut. <laughs> the like insane professor from Back to the Future hair, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Okay. Well, anyway, we're just for time's sake. Let's just move on. So, sure. um, if anybody can tell me why the movie's called Sunday Bloody Sunday. Please message me. I'd love to know. Hey, Best Actress listeners. Enjoying the show? Want to hear more? Access our entire catalog of Best Actress episodes from the very beginning, ad-free, by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com bestactress. By subscribing, you will also gain access to new episodes one day earlier than their normal release day. Best Actress Podcast will always have 10 free episodes available, but with the release of a new episode, the oldest will go to Patreon, where you can access it anytime with your subscription. Come on, ladies, it's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe. Okay, let's talk about Julie Christie and McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Mm-hmm. So this is a great transition because I loved this movie. Uh, very quickly, a gambler and a prostitute become a biz- become business partners in a remote Old West mining town and then enterprise their enterprise thrives until a large corporation arrives on the scene. And by large corporation, it basically has ties to the mob and because they refuse to sell the rights to the mines, like the mineral rights, they send the mob people after, the hitmen after um, Warren Beatty, my favorite. I hate him. 
and uh, <laughs> you know they try to kill him and spoiler alert oh they do and he freezes to death in the snow sad but it's actually a fantastic uh movie and it actually according to the american film institute is rated as number eight on the top 10 greatest westerns of all time not that i'm like a huge western person but like i could oh, see that because a big deal yeah yeah, oh, 100%. And I, I did enjoy this. Um, the only Oscar nomination was for Julie Christie for acting. And director um, Robert Altman got revenge on Beatty, Warren Beatty because Warren Beatty is famous for doing so many retakes, like 25 retakes of just one thing, um, that Altman actually made him do 25 takes of the scene of him freezing to death in the snow. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's kind of hilarious. I mean, at least you just have to sit there, but... <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, so Julie Christie in the movie is sort of like the head of the brothel. She's like the lady of the house. And she is not terribly sorry because she is very sex positive. She knows how to properly run the brothel. She knows what to do if any of the women get pregnant or if they have like... I don't know, herpes. One of the girls had herpes at one point, um, although it looked more like monkeypox than herpes uh, because it was um, a pustule, not like a blister. But anyway, who cares? Oh, um, I was trying I, to figure out what that was. I was like, is there just like icing on her face from the cake yeah. or something? <laughs> it was, I'm assuming it was supposed to be herpes, but it, it didn't look like herpes. Um, and so, okay, so very... Very quickly, so McCabe, Warren Beatty, he uh, was believed to have shot this guy named Bill Roundtree, and he has this reputation of being this, like, guy who, but apparently he didn't actually kill him, and then the bounty hunters at the end were like, oh, you did kill Bill Roundtree, which was another reason why they wanted to kill him, and Julie Christie, of course, falls in love with him. I think she also was a prostitute as well. The IMDb said that it was, so I guess she was a prostitute as well, because I think that... she makes Warren Beatty pay for sex every time they hook up, even though I think that she's like romantically interested in him. That's right. As we had previously mentioned, whenever we were talking about Vanessa Redgrave, Julie Christie in this role for me is not a lead actress. She's for sure a supporting. But when I watched that video on Be Kind Rewind, mm. um, the person uh, who I, I, I can't remember her name. I'm so sorry. But she actually said that Julie Christie was likely um Jane Fonda's biggest competition this year and I don't know if I necessarily agree with it because I liked how sex positive she was how unconventional she was how much like dignity she had in her role and I thought that was very interesting and probably for the role uh, for the time again like very risque but again we have roles where it's like the women are either mistresses or hookers or mothers so I don't really think that this role was either compelling or really that groundbreaking or really that interesting. And I think Julie Christie is doing a great job. But even her Cockney accent, it just kind of seemed like kind of lazy. Like, I don't don't know. I'm just not really convinced. I'm really not convinced by a lead actress nomination for this. That's just my opinion. But what did you think? Yeah, there's a little category fraud here for sure. But Mm -hmm. um but maybe that's just due to a lack of leading performances. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, I will say, you know, this film really caught me by surprise. I, I had not heard of this film before. I'm not a Western genre person per se. 
And I have to say, in the opening sequence of this film, it just grabs you. Like mm-hmm. this, you know, they use um, a lot of Leonard Cohen's music yeah. in this movie, <laughs> which is almost like another character in this movie in terms of just how prominent it is. And I, I you know, this might make me a bad Canadian. I was not very familiar with Leonard Cohen's music either. Um, yeah, same. Yeah. And so, I mean, I know of him, of course, but I just, I'm not as familiar. And I just feel like it's a Western, but it takes place in Washington State. So it's in the mm-hmm. north and you have like all the fall foliage and then the winter and then the spring. Like you kind of go through the four seasons with this with this movie. It has I think it's a 10 out of 10 for cinematography. This has some yeah. of the best cinematography like period. Like I think it's a beautiful film. And I think as far as uh, Julie Christie goes. Wait. Yes. As far as Julie Christie goes. I think her performance in this film is great. Now, is it the most groundbreaking role? Maybe not. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you're starting to notice a theme here (laughs) with the 1971 (laughs) uh, nominations. But I think, you know, it's almost like um, with, um, oh my God, why am I blanking? In Fargo. Mm -hmm. And I'm blanking on her name, which is so embarrassing. Frances McDormand. Thank you. Frances McDormand. You yeah. know, it's like she kind of shows up at the beginning of Act Two and like steals the movie. Right. right? And I feel like with with Julie Christie, it, she isn't stealing the movie. It's not that deep of a presence, but it's a presence. And I felt like they were trying to go for like a similar thing there with her in this film. Um, I love that she uh, is the strong businesswoman in this in this world i mean it takes place you know in turn of the century uh washington state it's a very lawless world where it is still the wild wild west here this is you know there's there's mining happening there's a lot of murder even some rape happening where there's just little to no consequence for it Mm -hmm. at all and this is like the one woman who really seems to have figured out how to thrive in this Mm -hmm. like really harsh climate and even then it's like you know she can't really have a family or have a husband but this is kind of all she can this is the most she could ever possibly accomplish for herself and that's true i mean i guess that's a very good point and maybe that does kind of change my opinion very slightly i do enjoy the fact that warren Beatty and she she insisted that they were equals and that it was like 50 50. And I loved um, just the way that she carried herself with complete integrity. And I enjoyed that. But again, <laughs> I just really, I just really. I enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> like the most just... downward intonation I've ever heard. And, I, and I'm totally sorry, but I, 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 I just, I'm sorry. I just, I'm going to elicit the gay gasp here, but I just don't understand how she was nominated for best performance by an actress in a leading role. I, I I'm sorry. I just, I don't see it. Like, would you I feel just... better if it were a supporting actress nomination? 
Totally. Okay, so you don't. So totally. it's not that it's a bad performance. It's just not a lead actress performance. Yeah, I just don't think it's a lead actress performance. I just, for me, I wanted more from her because I think that in this world of, you know, everyone like drinking whiskey and shooting each other and freezing to death and trying to build log cabins, it's like, cool, we need log cabins and cool, like people (laughs) are obviously going to drink, like cool. And then suddenly you have this like strong kind of businesswoman who shows up and you're like, okay, cool we're gonna get the businesswoman special like i fucking love that (laughs) and i just just, and i just wanted more from it and i just felt like i didn't get enough from it like do you remember whenever he's like getting into bed with her and then she insists that you know he pays her and then he has to put his money in like her little treasure box and then she's like in bed doing this really weird taking the covers and putting them over her face, but then like her eyes were sticking out and she's like looking like left to right, like all shifty. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> she also had like an opium addiction. Um, yeah, I, I also really thought, oh, that's over the opium addiction. Part yeah, <laughs> I was like, that's interesting. Like, let's get into that more. I, I frankly like just kind of loved her like costumes and her hair more than I did the actual Role. Like, I, I just thought that she had fantastic presence, but I just kind of wanted more from her. And I think that you have a very interesting character that I just don't really think that they explored enough of. Yeah, like, you know. Okay, I'm going to make a, a comparison to a film that came out the year after this, and that is The Godfather. You okay. Know, the, the Godfather isn't about Diane Keaton. You know I mean? right. <laughs> okay 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 look julie christie has a much greater presence in this movie than tying keaton does in the godfather but this yeah this movie is not about her and i think there's a great argument to be made that it should be it should be more her character's name is in the title right it's called mccabe and mrs miller and right. we don't get enough mrs miller mm-hmm. agreed i do think just as a movie it is fantastic yes totally but yeah I, but you're right there is not enough mrs miller in mccabe and mrs miller another like, <laughs> just title throwing us in a in for a loop here but I mean, even whenever she's like worried for him because she knows that like now he has a bounty on his head, I wanted more from her. I mean, can you tell me like what do you think was the Oscar moment? Mm. Right? Like you got to think about it. Like I just didn't think that they used Julie Christie to the best of her abilities. Yeah, I think maybe it, like honestly, the Oscar moment for her might have been at the very, very end where she is with a, a group of, of Asian people who I met, I think they're railroad builders. And mm. she's in a, essentially an opium den and she's lying there and she's high, which is how this movie ends. And I think it's to symbolize that she's kind of dead inside. I think, and I think I that think, would be the closest thing to it. I'm not saying that's a good, but, you know, I think that would be it. Well, who was it? I, oh, my God. Her name is escaping me. It's like, is it Ruth something? And she did that test where it's like, 
a role for a woman where it's like if they pass the test, it's like is the female character is her whole world about men? Yeah, that's exactly. It's like maybe because it's like you already failed, Kyle. I know exactly, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm totally sorry. That's that's my get out of the jail free card is totally sorry. But <laughs> yes, we accept. <laughs> but like, you know, it's like this clearly fails that test because it's like she sort of seems like we're about equals and I'm a business owner and I'm a successful business owner. But then the second that like her man dies, it's like her whole world is. I mean, I, I don't know. I just you're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. Also, I just did. I did think that it was really funny though that every scene was punctuated with Leonard Cohen music because I only know the mm. song Suzanne, and I love the song Suzanne, but that's actually the only song that I'm familiar with by Leonard Cohen, and it weirdly fits. Like he, Leonard Cohen even said he was like, "Yeah, he's like, I don't like this movie. It doesn't make sense." But then a year later, he like <laughs> revisited it, and he was like, "You know what? This actually works." I mean, it makes sense. I don't know what Leonard Cohen meant by it doesn't make sense, but. Because <laughs> <laughs> like it's like a Western. Leonard Cohen to me almost seems like. Yeah, but it's romantic but it, or yeah, something. But it's, I don't but know. it's Washington. It's Washington State. It's not the typical like Southern United States, Wild Wild West that mm. that you normally see. Right. It's a completely different landscape. I think, you know, I they, I think they filmed this movie in Vancouver. So it has a mm. lot of like, you know, those very tall trees, maybe even some redwoods. Like it just kind of has a whole other vibe to it than a typical Western film. I think that's why the Leonard Cohen folk music makes so much sense as opposed to like, you know, the like country music. Yeah, no, that's true. But honestly, I I love Julie Christie. We've talked about her on this podcast um, before. There was a movie that she was nominated in like the mid two thousands called like Away from Her yeah. or something. And that movie to me is like she should have won for that. Like she's so good, so so fantastic in that movie. And seeing her in this, I just kind of am like, yeah, like. She is confidently playing a sexual woman and a businesswoman, and she demands to be equal, and she has strong presence, but I just don't really think that they use Julie Christie to the best of her abilities, and I think it's category fraud. And that's all I have to say. Yeah, again, an actress doing the most with what they've been given. True. Yeah, that's very true. Um, Okay, well, for time's sake, let's just move on. So let's talk about Janet Sussman in Nicholas and Alexandra. Right. So Nicholas, who is played by Michael Jaston, uh oh my the czar of russia i thought he was so sexy there's yeah, nothing he's sexier really than hot. <laughs> i'm not gonna lie so, so very well hot. groomed he has like the blue eyes situation going on brown hair very sexy and um alexandra is his wife she's the queen and um this is a three hour long movie i did not know and i had to watch uh, it in parts I did watch the whole thing at once. And you know what? I'm going to give this movie a solid B+. I think it dragged on quite a bit. However, I do enjoy stories of like a dynasty, uh, you know, collapsing. I'm into a story about monarchy. I I love, I'm rewatching The Crown right now. It's interesting Mm. to hear familiar names like King George, for example, who refused entry to... um, or refuge for Nicholas and Alexander because they were so loathed and they 
did not stand for democracy because apparently they had like a tyrannical rule over Russia, which frankly, the movie did not do a good job at making that clear because Nicholas and Alexandra in this film seemed like Disney characters. They seemed like, oh, Papa, I'm so happy. Are you happy? Oh, I'm, I'm totally happy. Like I didn't get that he was, I didn't necessarily understand why he was so hated until you would see what would happen to his subjects and the killings. And I believe their bloody Sunday again comes up because whenever the priest is running at the, uh, what do you, I don't know, the soldiers and then they open fire on the. Um, this film should have been called Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Yeah, exactly. I'm pretty sure that this is Bloody movie Sunday. actually had a Bloody Sunday in it. Exactly. So I was a little confused because it just seemed like the czar, Nicholas, was a very wonderful family-oriented man. But then you find out that, no, he actually was like a complete piece. And then, like, historically speaking. And um, so, okay, a couple facts. The author wrote this book because his son was also a hemophiliac because their son – oh, what was his son's name? It was Alexi? Alexi. He – yeah, Alexi was uh, a – a hemophiliac, a very severe hemophiliac. And apparently this was uh, the, they called this the royal sickness because it dated back to like Queen Victoria or Queen Mary. Anyway, um, there was a lot of historical inaccuracies because the Soviet government would only allow quote approved materials when Robert, Robert K. Massey initially researched the book. So like, basically like maybe that's why it was unclear. Like, that why he was so hated like over because they said that he was a tyrant and i'm like well i'm not getting that vibe at all from him but anyway um director franklin j shapner he actually purposely cast unknowns like janet susman who was on loan from the the shakespeare company in london so that the audience would focus on the storytelling and this is also the film debut of janet susman and this is also her only academy award nomination wow um yeah um I immediately, she has that sort of Disney, like, are you happy, dear? Oh, I'm so happy. And at first I was like, oh God. But then like, you see how much she cares for her son and how worried she is for him. Although I gotta say, whenever they were sending off the soldiers to war because they were in that Japanese war and they were seeing off the soldiers and then they find out that the baby like cut himself or was bleeding and she looks at the czar and goes, oh my God, I want my baby. I burst out <laughs> laughing. It was it was like Moira Rose from Schitt's Creek, like baby, like the way that she said it was comedy other than that one comedic role, she was fantastic as Alexandra. She carried the role of the Tsar's wife, the Queen of Russia, um, very effortlessly. She was very sympathetic. Um, I love all the costumes. I love the jewelry. I love the opulence. I love the cinematography. There were so many things I loved about this movie. It was a little long, like, but I loved it. I loved her, and I... Don't know if I would necessarily recommend this movie, but if you do enjoy stories of the monarchy that are historically inaccurate, then please (laughs) check out Nicholas and Alexandra, Best Picture nominee. So what did you think about this film and what did you think about Janet? Okay, here's the thing. (laughs) It's it's about turn-of-the-century Russia. And it is almost 20 years of history 
very intense history being packed into three hours. Right. And it is kind of impossible to to do that. I mean, that's why like today, like shows like The Crown are so great. Cause even telling the the life story of Queen Elizabeth would be so hard to do just in one film. Right now they get right. five, maybe I don't know if there's a sixth or season or not, but they're gonna have five seasons to do it. Where I think this, my God, if this were a TV show, this would be the best TV show. Totally. Right? Like this would be the best show. I hope that this moment in Russian history becomes a TV show. It would be so good. Um, with that being said, um, it, yeah, I, so, okay. Wow. Where do I even go from here? Um, <laughs> Janet, her name's Janet. The actress's name. Uh, uh, Janet Sussman. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea this was her first role. She, as far as I'm concerned, kills it. I think she does a great job. Again, doing the most with what she has, right? Because yeah. I felt like, just as you pointed out, like a lot of the lines were like, oh, my son, and oh, this, and oh, that. But I think <laughs> she, at least with her facial expressions and mannerisms and given the circumstances, really does the most. And then like you were saying the the weirdest most bizarre most you don't even know how to sit with it things about this movie is you realize you might be tell you might be seeing something from the villain's perspective but they're not even an anti-hero they're just a hero mm -hmm. and i exactly. think today this guy's an anti-hero right but in this he's just a hero and they gloss over the the atrocities that he caused and i actually i had to do a bit of deep diving into the real history of this because it's actually like it's seriously compelling and i'm not totally qualified to to speak on this history <laughs> but i feel like what happened and this is just my personal theory is i think this movie is so sympathetic to uh nicholas ii of russia because I think there was a lot of resentment towards the Soviet Union mm -hmm. during this time that it made people almost nostalgic for the monarchy that existed before that. Oh, that's a really, that's probably true. That would make so much sense. I think that's what happened. And I think that's why we got this movie from that point of view. Okay. Well, I mean, for some of the best scenes from Janet Sussman was when she admits to being responsible for um, Alexei's hemophilia and she's punishing herself mm. and a lot yeah, of... Yeah, not like responsible, responsible, just from her DNA. Right. Yeah. But that sort of seems to be like kind of her main, not necessarily conflict, but like her main grief and like her main sort of focal point of like her emotional arc and her story it's mostly just about her son because he is the only heir that she produced that was male so the only rightful heir also did not know this 
because I don't know that much about history, but one of the four daughters was the famous Anastasia. And the story of Anastasia is that she survived the execution at the end. And then famously, there was this woman uh, who was found in like a a river in like Germany or something. And she claimed to be Anastasia. And anyway, turns out that she actually wasn't. She was Polish. But um, I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know that Anastasia was one of those daughters. Um, also, you oh, were talking about the Romanov TV. Well, you were talking about the Romanov TV show. So there actually is a Romanov TV series, and it's an anthology of eight stories uh, about people who believe themselves to be descendants of the Russian royal family. Oh, wow. Uh, but it's, yeah, but it's not actually about the That moment royal in time. Family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, I love well, this, a mission. Yeah, they, they, that family reigned for 304 years. Oh, imagine being the one responsible for like the for downfall of the monarchy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is wild. Like 304 years and you are pretty much solely responsible for its demise. I mean, and it's it was essentially, you know, what I gathered from the research I tried to do was that he wasn't, you know, it's kind of debated whether he was inherently evil or not. A, a lot of people don't think that he was, but that he was just such a poor leader. And right. he made such poor decisions that um, that it cost the lives of. In the movie, they say seven million people. Well, I that know that they were basically saying that he was a pushover. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, like it's, and they kept being like, "Oh, you're such a pushover because Alexandra is the one that's ruling," and they're like, "She's a German spy because she has German heritage." And when she was working as a nurse, one of the soldiers was like, "Oh, like you German, fucking whatever." And again, that's just something that I wish I had a little bit more information on. Mm -hmm. It seemed like you had to know a lot about history to like fully understand what was going on in the movie. Yes, that is a huge critique of mine for this film. It assumes you know all the history, all the characters involved. It just assumes you know too much. And uh, I mean, I don't know if people would have known this much at the time. And I think a lot of that depends on like where you grow up and what kind of like education you get. Because like, we get a lot of World War One education, but it comes from like a Canadian lens. Yeah. Oh no, that's right? very true. I I would definitely love to learn more about this. I think that the movie doesn't really become interesting until he abdicates the throne and abdicates his son's right to become the Tsar, um, and or the Tsar. Sorry. And whenever uh, King George and France had refused refugee uh, a refuge for the this the Romanov family. Um, I wanted to know like why they're like, well, you, they represent democracy and you represent tyrannical rule. And I'm like, okay, like I would love to see that, like a conflict with like King George. Like I would love to, uh, yeah, there was, there was just a lot of, but, but okay, sorry. We're, but, but just specifically (laughs) talking about (laughs) Janet Sussman. Um, she was the one that's really just trying to keep everything together. At one point, I think that she even says, Um, I wish that I knew what I did and I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, me too, girl. I wish I knew (laughs) what you did. Um, but she really did carry the role very well. She was a very sympathetic character and she played it, um, in a very like regal queen like way that I really appreciated. And for her first film, I thought that this was fantastic. Um, I, I wish they would like remake this type of movie or like series or something because i i think they could redo it in a much more interesting way and you're right i think a tv show would be perfect 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's just so much to decipher from all of this. So <laughs> for all the listeners, I apologize if it sounds like I've been like all over the place with this one. But I just feel like for her performance, um, she captures the regalness that you want to see from a queen very well. And she also encaptures kind of the rich entitlement Mm -hmm. um that you would expect from a royal also very well and as things are are really going downhill um you can tell she has moments of defeat but there's also this like naivete about her like oh but we'll be fine right like we're gonna be fine (laughs) and they are not gonna be fine you know what i mean (laughs) like they have abdicated the throne they've been exiled but there's just this thing it's like well but but we're still royals you know, and, and I think this the second half of this movie, in my opinion, is so much better than the first. And if I yes. were to redo this as a movie, I would have started it during the July crisis. That's the um, that's the quote unquote shot heard around the world. The assassination, uh, I believe, of the Austrian um, Archduke Ferdinand. Yes, that to me is where you start this movie. Well, because that was the catalyst for the First World War. Yes. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then you pull you you fold into the fact that um sorry you fold into the fact that Russia had already um fought and essentially lost a war with Japan very shortly before World War One, which I actually didn't know. Um, I didn't know right. that they were already in another war prior to this, and so yeah, two losing two wars like that back to back is absolutely devastating and. You could see why the the people would revolt, um, but they were just too likable. That was my only critique because it just seemed like why did everybody hate them? Because it was like I could understand that the people were starving and the people were being sent to war, and it's like you should be focusing on your people right now, not spending millions on you know the war effort. Like it, they're calling it a pointless war. Okay, but like why and why is Nicholas making these decisions? Why is he being considered such a crappy leader? Like why is he such a crappy leader? Like there was just a lot of things that I was just confused by. Um, and but one of the best scenes in the movie between Nicholas and Alexandra was when he abdicates the throne and he comes back oh, and he's like ashamed yeah. of what he he's like ashamed of what he did and then he like falls down on the ground and they're like crying and like reaching out to each other but they're not like embracing it's a it's a real um daniel day lewis i abandoned my child yes yes Um, absolutely yeah uh, i think um i just want to say you know that when your critique of that they're they're too likable they are so likable in this movie that I think one could even argue that it's propaganda. That well, exactly. I think it's it's and, almost it's it's almost damning how likable they are. Well, that's just it, and apparently, yeah, because the Soviet government only gave them like approved materials. Like, yeah, it likely is. Yeah, but um, the the film made me more curious about this history in this era and time um so i appreciate how much it sparked my curiosity um we got to give out a sh- we got to give a shout out to rasputin yes rasputin wow rasputin man tom baker tom baker solid in the movie uh i want his life to be a film yeah like his right? whole life could be its own 
spinoff of this. But when I saw Rasputin, I was like, wait a second. Is he the guy from the song? <laughs> yes. Leader of the Russian Queen. Yeah. Yes, I had no, like, I don't know. Like, I've heard that song so many times that I just never, like, thought to connect it to history or not. And and that song is based on all, everything that this movie covers and more. I absolutely, I, and they really did a good job making him look like Rasputin as well. Oh yeah. I never actually Googled what he looks like. It look, he looks rough, man. <laughs> for just, but just for time's sake though, we do, we do need to move on uh, to our winner, but uh, Janet Sussman, uh, great film debut and great. I actually did like the movie a little long, but yeah, just a lot of questions. And fantastic performance. Fantastic performance. Okay, so let's talk about our winner, Jane Fonda for Clute. So this was uh, before uh, Hanoi Jane uh, during the Vietnam War when her career just fucking went tits up. And she, I believe, had been nominated like once or twice before at this point. And um, this was her win. If you actually watch her acceptance speech, it was Henry Fonda, her father, who told her to say, if she won, there's a great deal to say, but I'm not going to say it tonight. And I remember when I watched the broadcast, I was like, what the hell does that oh. mean? And I thought, oh, well, she's very political, so maybe that's why. But and it was actually to the the advice from her father, which I thought that was interesting. Um, Clute. Um, okay, that's actually... Donald Sutherland's character's name. I don't know why the movie's called Clute. Why is this movie called Clute? Yeah, I thought this that was weird. This is another title that makes absolutely no sense at all. It is <laughs> it is not his story. And it's not even it's close not... to being his story. And I did a little research and I saw that even Roger Ebert at the time said, "Why is this movie called Clute?" <laughs> That is how funny it is (laughs) that that is the title of this film. I love that. I mean, it it doesn't make sense, but okay, very quickly. Clute, a small town detective, Donald Sutherland, searching for a missing man has only one lead, a connection with a New York prostitute, a.k.a. Jane Fonda, a.k.a. Brie Daniels. And when when I heard her say Brie Daniels, I thought Brie Daniels the butler. Like, like... Like Lee Daniels, the butler. And I was like, oh my God, Brie. Da- I can't. I can't. Okay, so very quickly, a couple facts. In the original script, the psychiatrist was actually male, and Fonda requested it to be female because as a woman, she wouldn't say, she believed that a woman wouldn't say those things to a man and filmed the scenes with the psychiatrist last because Brie her character um, had been fully internalized at that point. So she was able to speak on Bree's behalf. And a lot of that is actually improv. And when you watch it, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, Fonda spent a lot of time with hookers and pimps, but the pimps refused to represent her. And she thought it was because she was undesirable. So she suggested to the director, Alan J. Pakula, that she gets, that she be replaced with Faye Dunaway. And uh, the role was actually originally offered to Barbara Streisand, which, frankly, I don't know what that would. I don't know what that would be. That'd be a different movie. I can't imagine that movie. I can't imagine it either. But so the song very... would have been good. Oh my god! <laughs> <Just> the, the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Barbara Streisand doing a whole album about being a hooker. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, that would have been fun. I mean, it could have been do, fun. Didn't she do something like a movie called like Nuts that was like similar? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. But immediately, right off the top, Jane Fonda in this movie. I've seen this movie before, but just immediately, I appreciate that she goes for it. And just like, you know, um, like Glenda Jackson in Sunday Bloody Sunday, this role for the 70s was very risque because there's a lot of nudity. There's a lot of um, language where she's like, are you upset because you didn't make me come? I don't really know a lot of leading ladies at the time that were sort of using this type of language. So this mm-hmm. is a very gritty performance. It's a psychological thriller. It it does such a good job at building up the tension. I've seen this movie multiple times. I love Clute. I love Jane Fonda in this. Um, I love the way that she defends her character by saying that uh, she enjoys being a call girl because um, – she's in it's the one time that she's in control Mm -hmm. and she feels desired because she's kind of a bit of a failed actress and um i love all the reasoning behind her character and this is something that's just lacking in all of the other roles i actually find out what her motivation is and i actually understand like why she's doing the thing that she's doing and then while all of that is going on there's also somebody that's like chasing her and like trying to kill her it's a fantastic movie it's almost like the precursor to like Silence of the Lambs in a way where it's just like that type of crime, psychological thriller drama, obviously completely different, but I'm just saying that just a great way of building up tension. And um, I just love this movie. I love Jane Fonda in it. Um, what did you think? I think everything that, um, you know, with the previous films that I've complained about in terms of the the writing and how like there's levels of depth and complexity that don't exist for these characters but you know it's kind of uh you know it's the era of the time and you know they didn't get to have that etc you know a movie like clute makes you realize just how much it was there and how possible it really was and it actually is a failure of those films that they didn't (laughs) i agree that's a very eloquent way of putting that that's so true yeah, I, I mean, and, and it's like, I don't mean to disparage them entirely because I do think Clute is a forward, progressive thinking movie. But still, it's like when you see what was possible from that era, then you can't go back and, and, and give the other things excuses. Um, with that being said, yeah, I, I think uh, Jane Fonda really knocks us out of the park. Um, she carries this film the whole way. I I love that we have these moments with her and a psychiatrist. I this movie wouldn't be the same without those moments. Although mm. a part of me was like, I know she's a high end hooker, but I mean this girl's in a brownstone and has a therapist. Like she is doing <laughs> well. I yeah, mean, hookers she's, made she's a lot back basically then. Basically, living like if Carrie Bradshaw was in a Bachelor, is how she is living. <laughs> like she is living well, and you know they don't really get into that, and that is fine because that's not really what this movie is about. Um, her relationship with uh donald sutherland is hot uh it is it's 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 fun to watch although it's like weird because he's clearly like lacking boundaries 
with with this yeah. role as a <laughs> as a detective like this is a real no-no um but yeah. in the 70s they were like we know what the people want <laughs> <laughs> hey i moved a, into the basement downstairs to be closer to you <laughs> yeah i mean this is a much better pretty woman uh, <laughs> 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 i would take this over pretty woman any day um I think the uh, the moment with Jane Fonda um, with the psychiatrist um, when she's explaining how she's struggling with these feelings um, for Donald Sutherland's character because they're kind of like they're genuine and he cares and she doesn't understand what that means and therefore she's unable to enjoy it. And there's a moment when she says, I just wish I didn't keep wanting to destroy it. And that hit hard. I was like, that is some legitimate psychology that is happening <laughs> in this film that isn't just someone talking to a, a therapist and someone imagining what that's like. Like, that is real. That is what real therapy is like. And, mm -hmm. and I thought that was so impressive that this film, again, willing to dig deep enough to to be that and i think even to this day i get frustrated where with with films and with characters who try to talk about any kind of mental health thing not even mental illness but just anything related to mental health and you could just tell that these therapy scenes are so fake and it's somebody yeah. who's just imagining what that's like and i don't know if this writer or director have been through that or not but they they did their homework because that was real. Whenever I first started this podcast, I remember I used to mention, because this was just kind of like a trope with any, like, if it was like an Alcoholics Anonymous, like group therapy or mm -hmm. therapist scene or counseling or whatever, whoever the lead actor was talking to the therapist, they always had to be like, I don't even want to be here. And they just had to be so resistant to the process and so like, yeah, like, oh, are you psychoanalyzing me? Ugh. And it was such a trope <laughs> where it's like, you know what would be groundbreaking is if we had one therapy scene where they were just having an actual session. Yeah. We weren't resistant to the process and we were like actually learning things about the character instead of them being so resistant to the process. And... I love that for the 1970s and Jane Fonda in this movie is actually doing like a therapy session and you're like, congratulations, 1971. Like you figured it out. Why the fuck couldn't every movie yeah. that then preceded it not figure it out? Exactly. I can also, I love that because you mentioned Pretty Woman. So that's kind of the hooker with the heart of gold story. <laughs> a big reason why this. I don't even know how that became a trope in the first place. I, like, I how many Hollywood directors were with kind hookers that, that just was... became a trope in her storytelling? It's kind of wild. Be because that was the rules for women. It was either hooker, mistress, mother. That was it. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, but she's the hooker with the heart of gold. But in this, everyone appreciated that she was not a hooker with a heart of gold. She had flaws and she was kind of selfish and she did what she wanted. She acted in, on her best interest. Um, I also was funny that you mentioned the thing about living in the fucking brownstone because I literally wrote in my notes, were apartments just free back then? <laughs> I mean, I know like 1970s New York is like not what it is today, but I'm still, right. still it was like, this kind of, it was jarring bills, you know? No, a hundred percent. Um, 
I also just love the way that like the emotional journey of Brie, you can always tell where she's at emotionally because the more that she helps Donald Sutherland, the more the weight of the reality of the the um, looming danger that's on the horizon really begins to fall on her shoulders and she kind of just like carries it like on her face. Mm. Like she does it in sort of like, a, uh, she just emotes it. Like she doesn't say anything, but you can tell that she's like, oh my God, like I'm a fucking, I'm about to die. Like someone's coming for me. Um, which I really appreciate. And she paced that very, very nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, and the climax of it, of course, is whenever she's listening to the murderer kill the other prostitute. And this that scene where she starts crying, that was not planned. She said that when she was listening to the tape, something unexpected happened and I just started crying. My, I just started crying. Wow. I think that for me was probably like her Oscar scene. Probably. I mean, I think for me, what this film does so well and what I think I'm so fascinated by is they made Brie Daniels, the character, more interesting than the crime drama. That's so true. Absolutely. And that is just so wild to me. And I think is such an achievement in storytelling. Um, I think, just for time's sake, I do think that we should probably wrap this up. Yeah, do you have one, anything? Yeah, one quick thing. The thing I hate the most about this film is her haircut. <laughs> That's the iconic Clute haircut. That she actually... <laughs> haircut is so hideous to me. What is that haircut? It is so it's a bad. Bowl. It's, it's so bad. It's like a Paul McCartney haircut. It's weird. No, it's like a Paul McCartney haircut and then hair underneath that haircut. I know. So at this time, I watched this really interesting Jane Fonda documentary that came out. It was either on Showtime or something. It's on Crave if you live in Canada. And I wa- it was so fascinating because Jane Fonda is just a very fascinating person. She mm-hmm. has to- so many different versions of her life. And, and it's just a very – she has a very interesting life. But anyway – she at the time was sick and tired of being like the beautiful goddess type of Hollywood star that she thought that she would be. So she went to this like famous hairdresser and she said, just take it all off, take the big hair off. Like I want something, I want something different and I want something fashionable. And it was the clute haircut. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was almost like a protest of like having to be like the pretty girl. Cause she, I think she was, um, I don't know if she was bulimic or anorexic, but it was, she had an eating disorder and she, she was trying to, because of the way that she wanted her father's approval, she was trying to hold herself to the Hollywood standard of beauty. And and so that haircut was kind of like her protest to that. Oh, wow. But yeah, you're right. It is kind of ugly. (laughs) Well, I mean, at least she, if you're going to live with a haircut like that, at least she justifies it. <laughs> or she just made that whole thing up to just like yeah, have an excuse for the look. <laughs> she tried to cut it at home. That was it. <laughs> she went to first choice haircutters. Yeah. Sorry. Um, okay. Well, uh, I, just for time's sake, I think that we should reveal who we think that the Oscar should have. So Catherine Niker, you are my guest. Please reveal who you think that the Oscar should have gone to for the 1972 ceremony year. Uh, I think the Oscar should have gone to... Jane Fonda. I think this was a home run for Jane Fonda. I really don't 
think she had a ton of competition this year, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Um, I also do think that's just based on the films themselves and not the actress's uh, capabilities by any means. Mm-hmm. But this film is when people talk about why they love 1970s films, it's films like this that people love about the 70s. I agree with you. Um, And I do think that's interesting to say about the not commenting on the actress's ability, but mostly just like the films that they were in, because that also does certainly play into it. Um, Okay, so I think that the Oscar should have gone to... Jane Fonda for Clute. I don't really think that it's... um, really much of a competition here. You're right. I think it's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. Jane Fonda really had this in the bag. Um, You made such a good point by saying that she is more interesting than the actual like thriller portion of the movie. And that's so true. Um, She's compelling. She's interesting. She's complex. She's selfish. She's um, also like has complete agency of her body. She believes in, you know, like she wants to be a sex worker because it's her opportunity to be in control, to feel desired. And just hearing her justification for it, um, I'm sure for the time was also like very uh, groundbreaking. I love how risque the role was. I think her biggest competition wasn't even nominated. I think it would have been Glenda Jackson playing Queen Elizabeth. I thought that she was so much better than Vanessa Redgrave, even though Vanessa Redgrave was also like fantastic as well. And I also loved Mary Queen of Scots. It's a great movie. I enjoyed it. But I think that the nominations this year were interesting, let's say. And I just think that Jane Fonda, in comparison to anybody else, it's like they're, it's almost like a competition of good and fine. And then you have Jane Fonda, who is excellent. So it's like she's the standout. And yeah, I just, it was no competition. I can't imagine being so rich and beautiful that i would cut my hair like that (laughs) no idea what that's like yeah and then she did when she did uh coming home that was kind of going back to her more glamorous look and then they won an oscar she won another oscar so maybe they were like oh thank god she's back here's an oscar for you i don't know well i think it was smart strategically to stand out um yeah i will say that but wild I, it, to me it was like i mean i don't i hate being a superficial person but i i felt it distracting almost <laughs> um but almost you know it's certainly not enough to not enjoy the movie or anything i mean it's well, it's really i don't think anybody else other than jane fonda with that bone structure could pull off that hair it's a it's very unflattering. And it's not like anyone else in the movie. It's not like even in background shots, you don't see people with similar haircuts <laughs> or anything. Anyway, I'm being ridiculous right. now. A fantastic no, film for anyone listening. If you haven't watched Clue, wow, is it worth it? It is. All right. Oh, my God. That concludes another episode. Uh, uh, Catherine Eicher, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at it's me underscore Catherine, spelled C-A-T-H-R-Y-N. Amazing. Okay, well, thank you for being a guest, and we'll have to have you back again. Bye. Thank you. Did you enjoy the show? Want to hear more episodes? Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to access our entire catalog of episodes ad-free with your subscription. 
Subscribers also get access to new episodes one day earlier than everyone else. Oh my god. Go to patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe, and I will see you all at Howard's Inn.